0: forget frequently asked questions common sense common knowledge or google how about advice From a real genius, 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission, find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in fields such as sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Get ready. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Finding Genius podcast series. I have Stephen Greiman. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biology at Georgia Southern University. We're going to be talking about his uh, research on flatworms. Interesting. So, Stephen, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Why uh, Why? Why are you studying flatworms? What's uh, no C. elegans, or are these, uh, are these very different?
2: Yeah, they're uh, a little bit different from C. elegans. So, that's a round worm. Uh, you know, the flatworms are pretty diverse, so we use the word helminth a lot for multicellular parasites, um, and that includes the flatworms, but it also includes the roundworms like C. elegans, which is a non-parasitic roundworm or helminth. Uh, and so my group, I really like to focus on are tapeworms and flukes. And overall, they're an extremely diverse group of parasitic organisms. They have very complex life cycles, they all use multiple intermediate hosts, or at least one intermediate host, and then they all have a definitive host, which is usually a vertebrate, although there's a few exceptions where they can use things like leeches as a final host.
1: Weird. So what's the life cycle of a, of a tapeworm or you know, the flatworm that you're most interested in?
2: Yeah, so uh, for tapeworms, uh, most have a first intermediate host for all the terrestrial ones, so The ones that I like to study are usually in mammals or birds um, or reptiles or amphibians. There's a lot in fishes as well, and they have a little bit different life cycles. But those in mammals usually have a first intermediate host that's some type of arthropod. Um, So that could be, you know, an insect or in the case of, you know, human important tapeworms like the pork tapeworm or the beef tapeworm, uh, they use, right, beef or pork so pigs or cows as an intermediate host and so if the cow let's say eats a egg it will develop a cyst or the larval stage and then if a poor human then goes around and eats the uncooked beef and ingests that larval stage that was inside the uncooked beef then they will develop the adult worm in their intestines um, and so for tapeworms, go ahead what, what, what
1: designates an intermediate host is the parasite's behavior restricted only to a certain set in an intermediate host and then a full host is, is defined as like the full expression of the parasite or like uh, Yeah part? so that's
2: good uh yeah so for for parasites in general whether they're flatworms or you know uh malarial parasites like the the protozoans um we all use very similar terms so an intermediate host is any host where the parasite uh goes through uh asexual reproduction or growth Um, but does not actually become sexually mature and doesn't complete uh, sexual um, mating. And then the the final host is also known as a definitive host. And the definitive host is the host where the parasite develops sexual maturity and then actually reproduces sexually. Um, And so for tapeworms, uh, the vertebrate is the definitive host. And so the parasite develops as an adult, develops sexually, and then reproduces And then, in the case of, say, that beef tapeworm, the beef would be the intermediate host. So, the larval stage does some development and growth, um, but doesn't actually become sexually mature yet.
1: So, do intermediate hosts suffer bad health outcomes, or is that just a definitive host?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. So, for different, it depends on the parasite. Um, For some parasites, the uh, intermediate host uh, has a pretty rough life. And the goal of that parasite is to have that intermediate host eaten by the definitive host. So in some cases, these parasites actually change the behavior of the intermediate host to, you know, be more susceptible to predation. Um, And then in some other cases for humans, we can become incidental intermediate hosts for some of the parasites like the uh, pork tapeworm, where you can actually get the larval cysts by ingesting the eggs. They can get in your brain. They can cause seizures. They can get in your spinal cord. All your other organs, your body cavity, and in that case, we're most likely right not going to be eaten by another human, so we're dead end. Um, but they definitely cause a lot of pathology and, and disease. That's,
1: yeah, that's weird. Why would uh, so you're saying in an intermediate host, uh, certain parasites can influence the host behavior so it it gets killed and eaten by its final definitive host.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. So there's, uh, you know, the zombie snails with the Leucochloridium, which is a a genus of um, parasitic flukes. And in the snail, it causes the the tentacles to pulsate and change colors and look just like a, a maggot or a fly larva. And they actually also cause the snail to crawl up on vegetation and kind of project and be more, you know, visible to birds. Or there's some that can get in the eyes of fishes and cause them to go blind and, you know, move around very uh, sporadically and increases their chance of being eaten by say another fish or a fish eating bird. Uh, There's, you know, a significant number of different behavioral manipulations that parasites can do to their intermediate hosts um, to increase the chance that they'll move on to the next stage of their life cycle.
1: How could a parasite ever know that it's in a non-definitive host and influence a host's behavior to cause it to get into a definitive host. I guess, I guess it can't reproduce sexually. So maybe it uh, it's not in the homeostasis that it wants. So it, I guess induces the host behavior, the uh, somehow knowing that it'll get into a host where it can sexually reproduce. I mean, like, like maybe a way to test this is, I don't know, has there ever been two stages of intermediate host for any parasite or three?
2: Oh yeah. So there's a lot of parasitic flukes that have, You know, all of the digenians, which are those flukes, have a mollusk as a first intermediate host, and then a lot of them have an arthropod or some type of invertebrates or even a vertebrate like a fish as a second intermediate host, and then finally they can get to their definitive host. And even more can have another host added on, um, so you can have, you know, four host life cycles that are special ways to funnel the parasite to the actual definitive host. Uh, really, I mean, they don't think, you know, too well. They, I mean, they have nervous systems, um, but they've evolved so closely with their hosts that, you know, as they've evolved with the first hosts, they then eventually have been able to evolve to increase their life cycle by adding another host or losing hosts. Um, and a lot of difference, you know, there's research out there, especially with genomic sequencing, um, and transcriptomics, where you get changes in gene expression depending on the environment they're in. And so changes in temperature could initiate right, the alteration in a host or the ability for it to kind of understand where it's at in its environment. So if it's in the right intermediate host, it kind of gets these cues from the host's actual, you know, environments that it is in the intermediate host and not yet in the definitive host. So for a lot of these parasites, their intermediate hosts are cold-blooded animals. So a change in temperature from, say, an insect to the intestine of a a fish or a mammal is going to be a different environment. And those chemical cues and temperature cues can actually help that parasite know what genes to start turning on, whether it should develop to sexual maturity or not, Um, so it's definitely a super complex area and there's still a lot to know given that there's this huge diversity of these parasites and their life cycles are so, so diverse.
1: So what's, uh, what are you trying to figure out about them in specific?
2: Uh, yeah. So when, uh, my research lab really focuses on a couple of major things, it's kind of broad in its array of approaches, Um, but really all of it comes back together to kind of answer major questions related to parasitology. And so a lot of what I do is trying to document the diversity of these parasitic flatworms uh, globally. So, you know, it's a lot of field work looking at different hosts. So birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, all the above and collecting the parasites and, you know, maintaining those host vouchers and museum collections that are still associated with the parasite. Um, Because a lot of, the actual, you know, questions related to the biology, the evolution or ecology of these parasites relies a lot on proper identifications of the parasite, as well as really a good understanding of what diversity is present. And then, you know, understanding what's there, I like to apply kind of molecular approaches like genomic sequencing to look at the evolution and transmission biology of a lot of these parasites, uh, more focused towards animal parasites uh, less so on you know human um, parasites or or those of you know health importance. Okay, so
1: what is a nether host? by the way, you mentioned that as you were speaking?
2: Oh, yeah, so when it comes to their life cycles, you have uh, true intermediate hosts, and you have your definitive host. There's another kind of host type that's called a peritonic host, and these hosts uh, at least originally were believed that no development of the parasite happened within that host. All it was is kind of a intermediary between the definitive host and the intermediate host. And so a really good example of where peritonic hosts would come into play is, let's say you have a parasite that uses a small aquatic copepod, like a small insect, as its uh, intermediate host. But its definitive host is a bear. The bear is most likely not going to eat that small insect. It might accidentally eat it, but it's not going around and foraging for insects. And so instead, it evolved to get into a fish, but in that fish, it doesn't develop or grow. It's just a way to help funnel the parasite from the, right, the true intermediate host to that definitive host. However, now there's actually a lot of research going on that maybe peritonic hosts, you know, there are some development that could occur within them. And so maybe it's not really a good definition and they might actually be you know the beginning of a true intermediary or intermediate host
1: okay so what uh is there a problem in finding medicines you know at least in people to treat these parasites, or like what are the big issues in the area in terms of understanding and you know learning from the parasites and uh, again you know, getting rid of them when it needs to be
2: yeah, so when it comes to like chemotherapy for a lot of these parasites, there's good drugs out there already for the uh the kind of multicellular worms. Um, There's good drugs that target the muscles of the parasite. So it causes them to relax or constrict in a way that then they can not attach to the host intestines. Um, A lot of these parasites for the tapeworms are found in the intestines, but the flukes, those other uh, digenians or flatworms can be found in pretty much any other organs. So you can have them in your gallbladder, your liver lungs. They can get in the eyes, the body cavity, the bladder, and so for some of the worms, they're difficult. I mean, you can kill them with the drugs, but then their bodies are still there and the immune response will lead to kind of, you know, granulomas forming around them. Um, but there's a lot of drugs out there. Uh, when it comes to parasites that are really able to avoid kind of, you know, chemotherapies, those are the, the protozoans or some of the intracellular parasites like malarial or plasmodium parasites. Um, But even still, there's, right, so many people are exposed to these parasites through their diet. A lot of them don't cause major health issues, and so they might not know they're infected until, you know, it's a little too late. And then some like that pork tapeworm where they get into the brain and you get those larval stages in you, those are hard to treat. Uh, you can take drugs still, but there's still all that tissue still present in there. And again, that immune response to them can cause major issues. And so for most of those cases, if they're in the brain, you know, surgical removal of them is the really only way to go.
1: But how did you do a surgical removal if there's you know thousands or millions of them? Or is it just like one big tapeworm you're looking to to remove?
2: Uh, yeah. So in a lot of cases, they could be a single cyst. And so it's that larval stage still. So they're not that big. Um, But if you have some people that are constantly exposed to the eggs, and they're constantly ingesting those eggs, then yeah, then you could get, you know, hundreds to 1000s of individual metacestodes or those larval stages present in the in the tissue. And then in that case, yeah, it'd be pretty difficult to remove them all. And it also depends on where at in the brain it would be. And you have things like hydatid cysts that are uh, in a tapeworm genus called a kinococcus, and those can also infect humans, the larval stage, and you get these really large fluid-filled cysts that if they rupture, it can lead to pretty much instant death. And those also need to be removed by, you know, surgery, um, and they can be a pretty delicate operation.
1: But if we're the definitive host, I would think that anyone that's infected would have, you know, thousands and then millions of these parasites in them or do they stay at low levels for some reason or is there one of the parasites that turns into a worm and the rest stay in the larval stage like what, what happens
2: yeah so the good news for humans most of the parasites that infect us we can't get the larval stage uh, it's only those really small few so a actually does not use humans as a definitive host it uses canids like dogs or wolves as a true definitive host and we're an incidental intermediate host when we accidentally ingest some of the eggs. So when they say, you know, don't go pet dogs and, you know, in stray dogs, that's because you don't want to accidentally ingest some of those eggs. Um, When it comes to the pork tapeworm, yeah, that's a major issue in the fact that if you're infected with that tapeworm in particular and you don't wash your hands after going to the bathroom and you constantly are ingesting eggs, or you're infecting your family members, then yeah, then you end up getting, you know, constantly re-exposed to the eggs, and then constantly infected with the larval stage, and it's, you know, a pretty awful cycle of just constant infection. But again, the good news for humans, most of the parasites, like the beef tapeworm, or most other tapeworms we can get, or digenians, were the true definitive host, and we can't even act as an intermediate host. The parasite won't develop as a larval stage. So there's only those rare instances or those very few parasites that, you know, truly cause a major issue. And for those other ones, like the beef tapeworm, right, we got to eat undercooked beef and we have to ingest the larval stage. And that larval stage will just develop into a single tapeworm. It will never split into multiple ones. Well,
1: that's good. Do parasites have their own microbial attachment, like their own microbiome?
2: Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of interest now in uh, looking at the microbiome of the parasites themselves. But they're also being found to maybe even interact with the host's microbiomes. And so a lot of the research we're doing now is in some small mammals where we're, you know, doing seasonal sequencing of the gut microbiome as well as identifying all the parasites present and trying to see if there's any interactions. It's kind of a really interesting and growing field. And then one of my major areas of research is focused on bacterial symbionts. So, you know, they are potentially microbiomes of the parasites in this case of those flukes, they have a genus of bacteria known as near that are able to be maintained through the whole life cycle of the parasite. So they can go from that snail host right within the, actual parasite to the first intermediate host and then to a second intermediate host and be maintained all the way to the definitive host and passed in the eggs and all the different life cycle stages but they can also be passed from the parasites to the vertebrate hosts so to humans they can cause diseases in southeast asia there's a disease known as sinetsu fever and then there's also ones in horses potomac horse fever that causes like 60 percent fatality in these horses Uh, On the west coast in uh, Washington and Oregon, there's one that infects dogs known as salmon dog poisoning. These dogs accidentally eat the parasite larval stage in dead salmon on the beach, and then they get infected with the bacteria that was inside the parasite within the salmon. And it also is pretty deadly within those uh, dogs as well. And so a lot of my research is looking at that bacteria and how it's transmitted through the life cycle of the parasite and looking at the evolution and diversity of those. Um, but again, that's just one bacterial symbiont. They probably have a pretty diverse microbiome associated with themselves, and then they can probably interact with the microbiome of uh, their host as well.
1: So is it, are you able to study the microbiome of these uh, of these flatworms, or is it difficult? You can only do it in the context of a host?
2: Uh, yeah, so there's, there's studies going out there, and – It can be difficult. So the main thing you have to do is try to maintain the life cycle of a parasite in a lab and then try to wash the parasite off in some way to make sure when you sequence the parasite, you're also sequencing pretty much only that microbiome within the parasite and not or on the parasite and not the microbiome of the host as well. Um, But whether the host's microbiome is interconnected with the parasite's microbiome and depending on what host they're in, You know, they might pick up different bacteria is really not known. Um, But given the advancement of some of the metagenomic approaches, the ability to sequence all the organisms present in an environment or on or in an organism, it's becoming more easy to uh, try to sequence these microbiomes. I don't know of any really true studies out there yet that have unraveled a microbiome of a parasite, Um, But there's some that have started to do it and show the possibility of being able to do it. So it's definitely a new field that's emerging. um, And it might be used for chemotherapy for some of these parasites or ability to prevent them from infecting certain hosts. But I mean, the cool thing about a lot of these parasites is given they're so diverse, not all of them are that bad. And a lot of them are pretty important for kind of modulating immune responses within some of the hosts are important for developing immune response within young individuals of the host. Um, And then they're also pretty critical for ecosystem function and they can be indicators of pollution Um, because of their complex life cycle. You need pretty much a good array of different organisms to be present in the environment for them to, to thrive. So not all parasites, although they're parasites, a lot are still pretty good for, the host and the environment Well,
1: it will be interesting. The profile, for instance, the, uh, the microbe, you know, the microbiome of the parasite at different stages and different hosts, you know, when it's larval, when it's asexually reproducing, when it's in a definitive host, et cetera.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, that is a, a cool area for sure. Like if it's in that at first intermediate host, like a snail, does it maintain a core microbiome and does that core microbiome maintains throughout all of the hosts, even the definitive host, or do they change quite significantly and pick up the bacteria present within their host? Yeah, for sure that's a really interesting field and, and the really good way to get at that is by maintaining some of these complex life cycles in the lab. So you need to have, you know, the snail intermediate host, you got to have some insects second intermediate hosts and then even the, you know, say it's a mammal definitive host. All of that in the lab and then maintain the parasite so you can get good numbers to reproduce and uh, have a good sample size for that type of study. But the the approaches are there, and the ability to do it is there. Um, And so, yeah, it's definitely a really cool field, and there's some cool questions. And I'm sure we'll see very soon some really interesting research associated with parasite microbiomes.
1: Well, is there a lot of research into parasites? or I thought that, you know, it's more third-world countries that have to deal with them, and therefore there's not a ton of – maybe monetary incentive to defeat them and interests because of that, or do you see it as a big field that with a lot of people?
2: Uh, yeah. So I think, you know, parasitology is such a really broad field. You have a lot of people that want to try to get rid of malaria. you right. Plasmodium is a key source and there's a lot of money being pumped into that. And you have, you know, private foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation that, you know, donates lots and lots of money to trying to find vaccines or cures for malaria. Um, When it comes to a lot of these parasitic flatworms, yeah, a lot of the world that's exposed to them are third world countries. Um, But us in the U.S., we have a lot of people that are infected with things like, you know, hookworm or pinworm, or we have plenty of, you know, U.S. citizens that can get infected with pork tapeworm and beef tapeworm. Um, So it's definitely not just, you know, in third world countries, it's in the developed nations as well. Um, but yeah, money for treating them. And it's probably, you know, lower on the priority list for a lot of drug companies. So a lot of private money is probably not going towards it. Um, but there's still a lot from the national science foundation and the national institutes of health. You can get good grants. And so as long as, you know, you have interesting questions associated with the parasites and maybe even their hosts, uh, there's funding out there, but it it definitely has its, you know, niche spaces. Um, And it's not as big of a field as, say, right, cancer or, you know, protozoan parasites.
1: Um, Do you observe that parasites are changed by their hosts very much? Or is it more of like they're adapting to their hosts and that maybe changes them a little bit, but uh, they don't fundamentally change very much? Or are there hosts that somehow endogenize the parasites and then they stop there?
2: Uh, yeah so there 's you know there 's some cool studies looking at host parasite interactions, and so a lot at the beginning was our right, you have generalist parasites these are those parasites that can infect a wide array of hosts, and then you have these really specialist parasites that can only infect one you know vertebrate, so it could only be found in the Bengal tiger or something uh, although some of that is true they 're finding now that a lot of these parasites are able to Kind of quickly adapt to be able to infect new hosts or novel hosts that, right, maybe due to environmental change, they shift their distributions and maybe their original host is not there. And so a lot might die out, but some of them might be able to quickly adapt and start to infect a closely related vertebrate. Um, And then you get this quick change in that host association. And so that would cause, you know, minor changes in maybe gene expression or developmental timing of some of these parasites. Um, And then in some hosts too, there's some of these parasites that we know for sure infect a lot of different types of hosts. You actually do see differences in the overall size of some of them or the arrangement of some of their internal organs uh, pretty much all of the parasitic flatworms are hermaphroditic, so they have male and female right parts within a single individual. Um, but you can have slight changes in the development or the, uh, the morphology of some of these parasites depending on what hosts they're present in. Um, but a lot more research goes into how some of these parasites actually alter the behavior or uh, the reproduction of some of their hosts. So when it comes to some of the... Intermediate hosts, like the first intermediate host of flukes, which are those snails or some type of mollusk, a lot of them actually castrate the snail and prevent it from being able to reproduce. So it funnels all that nutrients from the snail that would go to normal reproduction to the parasite and then increases the ability of that parasite to quickly reproduce asexually and produce those larval stages that would then infect a second intermediate host.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, there's a couple more questions. When you talked about the definitive host, you said that's where the parasite will usually reproduce sexually, but what's its escape plan? I mean, the death of the host doesn't sound like a very good escape plan, but does it come out in the host's like feces or urine or, or is it hope that it gets eaten? I mean, like what? what's, again, what's the game, what's the game plan from there?
2: Yeah. The game plan for these parasites is really to reproduce and produce as many eggs or offspring as it possibly can. Unfortunately, if the host dies, for pretty much all of these flatworms, the adult parasite dies. Like you can't have, let's say a, I don't know, a mouse that has a tapeworm in it. It gets eaten by a mink or something. Uh, Even if that mink ate that adult tapeworm, that adult tapeworm wouldn't develop as, or stay alive as a new adult within that uh, new host, they would just die. And so there's no true escape plan. They can't eject out of the host through the feces And so they try to reproduce as quickly as possible and get those eggs out so that they can increase their chance of an intermediate host eating that egg and developing into the larval stages and using them as intermediate hosts. So they have really, really high fecundity and are able to produce for a lot of these parasites, hundreds of thousands of eggs and release those in the feces, or if they're in the lungs, they can be released in the sputum. And so there's, you know, a lot of ways to try to get those eggs or larval stages out, but once that adult is in that host, it's likely or highly, highly likely for most species that it cannot get to another host, so it can't escape.
1: Well, the parasite itself, but the offspring, I guess, will escape. So,
2: Right, yeah. So quick reproduction, and a lot of these parasites with their larval stages like are, unlike the tapeworms, let's say, our flukes again that use snails. They produce free-living stages called cercaria. And they produce clouds and clouds of these that exit the snail and enter the water column. And so if a single snail eats an egg, it will produce, right, hundreds of thousands, in some cases, a day of these cercaria that will then get into the water column. And you get to increase these numbers massively to increase the chance that they'll get into that second intermediate host insect. And so it's just a big numbers game to try to get it out there. In reality, it's like you think of these parasites and the true diversity of them and these really complex life cycles that, require all of these hosts to be present it's amazing that they're able to persist in their environment and and really they persist quite well okay
1: well any um any breakthroughs that you uh sense are coming in the next year for you with your work or
2: uh, yeah anything? yeah the cool part with my work so now we're uh employing a lot of genomic sequencing techniques to to studying the evolution of some of these mammal tapeworms uh and so we have a really large data set of about uh 100 or 180 individual um, specimens across a good number of genera and a lot of different species. And so using this genomic sequencing data, we're able to better understand, you know, some of the host parasites interactions. Eventually, by sequencing these genomes, we can do more transcriptomics and understand how they might be manipulating their intermediate hosts. Um, And so I really think with our, you know, the new genomic sequencing technologies that we'll start to really understand how the parasites and their hosts are truly interacting. And so I'm really excited to kind of get into that data a little more, do these analyses with the genomic data and apply that to, you know, laboratory life cycles and the bacteria that's like these near that are present in the parasite and how they might alter the gene expression. And so our new techniques that we're able to employ, like the genomic sequencing, will really advance a lot of the research in parasitology.
1: Okay, very good. So, well, Stephen, what's the best way for people to get in touch and to find out more about your work specifically?
2: Uh, yeah, I have a, a personal website. If they were just Google my name, Stephen Griman, uh, it links to the the Georgia Southern University webpage where I'm currently an assistant professor, and there's a link to my webpage. It's also just stephengriman.com, and that would go up to it and show you know the students that are currently working in my lab I fall behind a little bit on updating it at times, but in the in, uh, overview, it does a good job of explaining the type of research I do. And it has good contact information on there as well.
1: Very good. Well, Stephen,
2: thank you for coming. It's been a great call. Yeah, thank you for having me on, and I really enjoyed it.
0: Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice? From a real genius. 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission, find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in fields such as sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Get ready. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.